I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There once was a story that a lot of people believed that the Jews planned to take over the world. Never before have a race and a creed been accused of a more sinister conspiracy. Some of the features of the would-be Jewish program bear an uncanny resemblance to situations and events now developing under our eyes. But 100 years ago last month, the Times correspondent in what was then Constantinople discovered the true origins of this story, the forgery behind the so-called Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Is it necessary to produce further proofs that the majority of the protocols are simply paraphrases of the Geneva Dialogues? The questions now arise, how did the originals become known in Russia? And why were the protocols invented? This is the tale of a libeling of an entire people, the Times exclusive that proved it wasn't true, and the courtroom drama 15 years later, which showed that some conspiracy theories just won't die. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the lie that The Times nearly killed. Part 1. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. There is one thing about Constantinople that is worth your while to remember, said a diplomatist to the writer in 1908. If you only stay here long enough, you will meet many men who matter, and you may find the key to many strange secrets. Yet I must confess that when the discovery which is the theme of these articles was communicated to me, I was at first incredulous. Mr. X, who brought me the evidence, was convinced... Read this book through, he said, and you will find irrefutable proof that the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion is a plagiarism. In 1921, Major Philip Graves was in his second stint as Times Man in the Turkish capital of Constantinople when evidence came to him that a publication known as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in many ways, the greatest conspiracy theory of the 20th century was a forgery, a total fake. I've been interested in conspiracy theories and why people believe them for a long time. I've even written a book about it. So I was sitting at my desk at home a few weeks ago 
when from out of the blue, I got an email from a colleague. I'm Rose Wilde. I'm a writer for The Times, but on the side, I find every day a piece from the newspaper of 100 years ago, which goes into the paper on the letters page. So I do a lot of fishing around. I basically am reading the 100-year-old newspapers all the time. So, for example, you found recently one about a 100th anniversary of smallpox vaccination. Yes. There, a lot of these articles which I fish out are, in fact, very relevant to what's going on now and that there were anti-vaxxers a hundred years ago who would have thought it. So that's one of the things that you do and you sent me an email a few weeks ago. Why did you do that? Well I came across a leading article, something of a scoop. Our correspondent in Constantinople has discovered that this infamous book is a forgery. And you just suddenly thought Alderanovich, you'll be interested in this. I did, because this was really the great conspiracy theory of all time. And I knew you would have written about this and you'd know all about it. And the fact that this is an anniversary and this was a time story did seem to be a good excuse to revisit. I agreed with Rose, it certainly did. And one thing I knew about the protocols was that they don't just tell you about history. They tell you a lot about today. Originally, I planned to sit down just with Rose and talk about it. But it turned out that there was someone else interested in this tale and who had a lot to add. I'm Leanne McKeever. I'm the assistant archivist for News UK. I've been in archives for 10 years. I did a history degree and then this seems to morph into an archive career. What is an archive career? Um, Looking after lots of old documents, putting them in order, describing them, and providing access to the public. I knew we had digitised past editions of the paper and assumed that this is what we meant by the paper's archive. So, so wrong. At an address in the London suburb of Enfield, there is far more than just old copies of the newspaper. We have lots of bound newspapers, correspondence, photographs, adverts. We also have things like satellite phones and journalist survival kits. So it's very, very diverse. You have satellite phones in the archive. We do. Um, We have many things that kind of show how the news managed to get to the newspaper. I like to think of our archive as telling the story behind the stories. Into a room on the 17th floor of the ultra-modern News UK building... Leanne has brought a number of books, letters, embossed business cards, invoices and bound marked editions from the Enfield Archive. They will help us unravel the story of how the Times debunked this famous and oh-so-damaging conspiracy theory. The types of things that we're looking at here are, firstly, two enormous books which have actual editions of the times in them and they're a size of paper which you simply don't see anymore it's you know it's much bigger than a1 even and then the other thing we've got is a series of letters let's pause for a moment perhaps i should explain in a little more detail what the so-called protocols were in 1919 and 1920 in many languages and in many countries 
pamphlets began to be published and widely distributed, claiming that the disasters of the First World War and the Russian Revolution had all been the product of a plan. This plan had been hatched by the leading Jews of the world a quarter of a century earlier, and a record of the making of that plan, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, had been made and was now being published. In 1920, the British edition of the book, printed under the title of The Jewish Peril, claimed that the Protocols was a transcription of a secret meeting that had taken place at the first Zionist Congress in Baal in August 1897. A copy of this record had been stolen by someone horrified by its contents and eventually been put into the hands of a conservative Russian academic called Sergei Nihilus, who had first published it in Russia in 1905. But no one outside Russia had taken too much notice, not until after the revolution of 1917 anyway. The speakers in the book's text were supposedly the elders of Zion, various senior members of the Jewish communities around the globe, there was no Israel in those days. In a remarkably stilted and generalised prose, they reported back on their efforts to subvert the entire world order and replace it with one of their own. They would aim to run all the political parties, take control of all the banks, win ownership of all the newspapers of whatever opinion, and then publish anti-religious propaganda as well as pornography. The express purpose of all this was to create chaos, then war, then revolution, at the end of which world Jewry would take final and totalitarian control. Dumb stuff by anyone's standards, the kind of thing that only the intellectually challenged would buy into. But in the female atmosphere of the post-Great War world, it wasn't dismissed. It was widely believed, or at least given credence. In fact, in May 1920, a year before Graves, it made it into the pages of this newspaper. So here we have the contributors' copies, and um, they're basically a bound copy of the Times. Ah, now this is really interesting because May the 8th, 1920, it's headlined The Jewish Peril in quotation marks, a disturbing pamphlet, not in quotation marks, call for inquiry, definitely not in uh, quotation marks. And what this does is it says, here's this pamphlet, The Jewish Peril, which claims to be the record of a Jewish plot to take over the whole world. Never before have a race and a creed been accused of a more sinister conspiracy. Some of the features of the would-be Jewish programme bear an uncanny resemblance to situations and events now developing under our eyes. The author goes on to say that there should be an inquiry into the matter, presumably because these protocols could well be true. There was no indication of who that author might be. In fact, many have since assumed it was an editorial. But it wasn't. Because it turns out that the identity of the anonymous person who wrote this article is there, in the archives. And now here you can see the Jewish peril, the piece that we're talking about. And we can see here who wrote the piece. It says General Golovchevsky. Do we have any idea who General Golovchevsky is? He was a um, Russian diplomat in London. He was a, I think, major general, so he might have promoted himself for the purposes of writing for the Times. But there's a 
document which is actually his invoice, which is one of the treasures of the archive. We have the memo here, dated the May the 8th, 1920, and it's to the accountant. And it's asking, will you kindly see that a cheque for eight guineas is sent to General Golovchesky? 15 Queensgate Place, in payment for the article on the Jewish peril in today's issue of the Times. Uh, so he got eight guineas, as was, for writing this anonymous piece saying, oh, there's this very... Uh, unpleasant-looking document, and I think it might be true. And otherwise, if it wasn't for this, we wouldn't know it was him who had done it. We would have assumed it was just a Times writer. Was that a standard practice at the time, to get anonymous contributors to write nonsense for the Times? Yeah, up to a point. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure the editor usually hoped they weren't nonsense, but I think in this particular case, the sentiments he was expressing fitted with the uh, worldview of the editor of the time, whose name was Wickham Steed. He was famously anti-Semitic. He became editor in 1919 and then was removed from office in 1922. He would probably have thought that this was a reasonable point of view, I'm afraid. So somebody somehow commissioned this chap, uh, the general, or the general said to somebody over a drink at the club, how about I write up a piece for you saying there should be an inquiry? Yes, and I'm sure he did it on the understanding that he wouldn't be named. But it has to be said that, in fact, the Times didn't print bylines on articles at all at that stage. So this is why the bound volumes are so precious because the marked up volumes, because on the night the newspaper went to press or, you know, the next morning, presumably the managing editor's office went through a printed version of the Times and wrote by hand on each article who the writer was. And if it was a freelance, they wrote in red next to the name, what the person was paid. I think we're going to have to explain the context. I can't find this general by looking online. But firstly, in 1920, there was a civil war going on in Russia following the Bolshevik Revolution, and the anti-Bolsheviks were losing. If our general was in London, it's very probable that he was an anti-Bolshevik, a white Russian, living in exile. And now here he was, writing about the protocols anonymously, the protocols that had claimed that a Jewish conspiracy was behind the revolution. He was getting paid for doing it and lending it real credibility by being in the pages of the Times. Now, one thing I love that you sent to me, Rose, uh, when I was writing about it, is the fact that this provoked a series of letters. And there's one letter in particular that I really, really love. Can we can we find that? This is de Villiers' letter. So on the 10th of May, we get three letters, and one of them is from J. de Villiers. What's his address? Great Cumberland Place. And he is not impressed by General... What's his name? Golovchevsky. He's not impressed by General Golovchevsky's anonymous contribution at all, is he? He's not. He says, I cannot imagine that any sane person in this country of ours can possibly be disturbed by the evident twaddle contained in the protocols 
of the learned elders of Zion. It's marvellous, isn't it? Because he's not mincing any kind of words. Jay de Villiers of Cumberland, great Cumberland, says twaddle. It's just twaddle. And that is a bit of the tone of the letters on that particular day. But on another day, you found a different kind of letter, I think, Rose. Yes, there was a letter from a Sonia Howe from St Luke's Vicarage, Finchley. And this is May the 11th, the day after the wonderful Mr de Villiers has his letter in. She's mostly taking issue with the translation. I immediately perceived that the setting of these protocols gave them a totally different aspect from the one conveyed to the reader of the English pamphlet. But this very difference enhances their importance immensely. In order to give them their full value and importance, it's imperative to have an exact and correct translation, as well as to enable the reader to know the reasons which have led the author to publish these terrible statements so many of which we see verified in present-day conditions. That's a really important statement, because that happens again and again with the protocols, which is people say, we see it actually happening. It's borne out by events. Henry Ford says that. Adolf Hitler says that in Mein Kampf. She goes on, once these two conditions are fulfilled, the suspicion of anti-Semitism is removed. Who can How? be called anti-Semitic when they know what the Jews are really up to? So that's in the paper in 1920. And we don't really get that much more about it, do we, in the Times, until exactly 100 years ago. Coming up, the Times man in Constantinople stumbles on a scoop. Hi, this is Tom Whipple, Science Editor for The Times. Thanks for listening. By doing so, you enable me to keep pace with the rapidly changing developments in the coronavirus pandemic and more. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one free month. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
This is probably a good time to look at the central character in this story, the Times man in Constantinople. Philip Graves came from an Anglo-Irish family. They were educated in England, but the family's home was in Ballylickey in County Cork, which is a sort of, was a nest of Anglo-Irish toffs, I suppose one could say. He was an enthusiastic butterfly spotter, but he also was educated in Far Eastern politics. So Graves joined the staff in April 1907 and he became Constantinople correspondent in July 1908 to 1915. Then there was a gap, of course, because in the World War I, he was intelligence officer and he was based in Egypt, Arabia and Palestine. And then he returned as Constantinople correspondent in June 1919. He was immensely literate, rather witty man, and he wrote wonderful letters to the editorial manager of the Times, of which you have several relating to this, this particular incident. He's written about plenty of other stuff, but we pick up Graves during this second stint with the Times in 1921, a year or so after the Jewish Peril article had appeared in the paper. And Graves writes to the editor to tell him he has a scoop, which, like many scoops, has arrived out of the blue. We have this letter. It's in French and it's written to Graves. Graves is in Constantinople and received this actual letter, dated the 12th of the 7th, 21, 12th of July, in French. Monsieur, je suis depuis quelque temps en possession d'une preuve irréfutable. My French is good enough to know, sir, I am in possession of proof that this stuff that they call the protocols is a forgery. And it's got, it seems to have written pencil underneath it. It's typed, pencil underneath it. And that name is? Michel Mikhailov Razalev. And then he's attached to it two columns, in two columns, protocols on the left uh, and what does that say on the right original original and what he says is i have the original that the protocols are based upon here they are here's a comparison with what's in the protocols i.e., what's in the jewish peril and there and he's underlined some hasn't he mm -hmm. which sounds exactly the same they are exactly the same so rose as far as we know this guy this Russian guy in Constantinople, just sends Graves this out of the blue. Yes. Graves' correspondence to the Times editors, to the Times foreign editor, is always on writing paper, which has Club Constantinople at the top, which conjures up this wonderful vision of a place where all these spies and journalists and people of every nationality must have hung out and presumably he was easy to find. As Graves' eventual first article on the subject began... There is one thing about Constantinople that is worth your while to remember, said a diplomatist to the writer in 1908. If you only stay here long enough, you will meet many men who matter, and you may find the key to many strange secrets. Sure enough, to Graves comes the key to a strange secret in the shape of a letter I now had in front of me. 
The man writing the letter, Mikhail Raslovyev, explains that an old book he has in his possession contains large passages which are almost identical to what appears in the protocols, and he gives examples. So, Rasovlev acquired the book from a Russian ex-colonel of the Okhrana? The Russian secret police at that time under the Tsars. And that's all we know. Raslovyev wrote to Graves again on the 13th of July 1921. This letter includes what you might call a business card, except it only has three words printed on it. Mikhail Mikhailov Raslovyev. Nothing else. This second letter explains his reasons for divulging the contents of the book to the Times. He doesn't want it to be used as a weapon, he says. And while he doesn't want payment for the story, he is in need of some money if the Times might be so good as to advance him alone. I don't consider this as a purely business transaction. Had it been so, I would have certainly applied to one of the Jewish organisations who no doubt have greater interest than the Times in purchasing the dialogues. The original book mentioned in the first letter from Raslovyev is called The Dialogues. It's a book of imagined conversations between Niccolo Machiavelli and the French political philosopher Baron Montesquieu in hell. It was a political satire against the regime of Napoleon III, Emperor of France, published in 1864 by a French exile in Switzerland. So, Grace finds that the book from which the protocols are taken was published 30 years before the World Zionist Congress of which there is a supposed record. The next day, on the 13th of July, 1921, um, Graves writes to Henry Wickhamsteed, who is the editor of The Times, and he says, a very curious discovery has been made by a Russian here who is working for the American Red Cross. It is that the protocols of the learned elders is largely plagiarism of a book published at Geneva. What I love about this also, it's got private at the top, um, at the top of the letter itself. I'm not quite sure what that means. What's that connoting, Rose, that the editor shouldn't tell anybody? that I suppose so. it didn't get sent straight to the foreign desk, who would probably have ruined his scoop with a news story. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Times don't change, do they? Not that anything ever happens like that now. Graves' letters are handwritten on small notepaper. The handwriting is impeccable. And in it, writing to the Times, he describes Raslovyev's connections. He's a nephew of a Prince Volkonsky, very Tolstoyan, and a member of a moderate monarchist group. Graves ends the letter by saying, I think that the protocols should be exposed by non-Jews. In other words, Graves' estimate is it will have much more effect if non-Jewish people say that it's a forgery than if Jews say it's a forgery. So that's quite important, and he's probably right about that. That obviously has an effect on the editor, doesn't it? So the editor does what? Commissions it, says to Graves, yeah, right up for it. I might be a bit of an anti-Semite myself, but actually, you know, I'm the kind of anti-Semite that doesn't like forgeries. Go for it. We have this copy letter um, from the manager of the Times. So that's William Wintsmith. Leanne traces the story for us through the fabulous paper trail of the archives, including original cable messages. The Times' response to Graves on July the 20th on a yellowing sheet typed out in imperfect lines says, Read your letter, July 13th, we accept proposal, 
sending loan, arrange book conveyed by a trusty messenger, advise when dispatched, manager, times. I guess it's to be turned into a telegram. <laughs> so the Times agreed to Graves' proposal to help Raslovyev with a loan in exchange for the book. On the 25th of July 1921, we have a letter to the foreign editor uh, from Philip Graves, and it is requesting a messenger. So he wants to send the book to London, but he doesn't want to put it in the post. It's an important document for the story. So he's asking, can you find a messenger? He's concerned that anyone he asks over there will might stop off at different places. The trouble is that the people travelling just now whom I know are slapdash sort of fellows who might conceivably stop two or three times pour fair la noce on the way home at Venice or Paris and increase risks of loss. Well, that's a lovely image, isn't it? We're going to give these some people who are going to waltz across Europe, having a lot of fun on the way. God knows who they're going to come into contact with. Lord knows what they're going to get up to. Can we do it some other way? And I send here with the first of a series of three articles on the protocols and the Jewish peril. As soon as the messenger starts, I will advise you by urgent wire. A few days later, Graves writes again, talks about what's happening in Greece, another country on his patch, and then updates his editor on the situation with the protocols. A trusty messenger leaves on Friday next by Orient Express. He will stop nowhere en route, as he had intended, and will hand over a packet to the foreign editor on the night of his arrival, probably about midnight on the 9th, Tuesday. Graves continues, I think publication should take place as soon as possible. He's clearly worried about being scooped. Tomorrow, in part two, we'll discover the impact Graves' articles made and how, despite providing irrefutable proof that the protocols were a forgery, the conspiracy theory never quite went away. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Times assistant archivist Leanne McKeever and Times writer Rose Wilde. The work of Philip Graves was read by Bill Bingham. The producers were Edward Drummond and Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer is Asia Fuchs, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you've got a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow for part two. <laughs>